Welcome and thanks for tuning into the first segment of Con Las Comadres, a multimedia collective centering the voices, experiences, and work of women of color featuring Yennifer, Edna, and Karina. Our journey to becoming Comadres started at community college, taking similar classes and realizing that we all organize around social justice issues, while at the same time juggling responsibilities for families, friends, partners, and work. And in coming together and talking about what we were living in our daily lives, we realized we were healing a lot of our personal traumas, but also discussing our shared ancestral trauma. Yeah, and we kept uh, inviting each other to different events, and we realized that we weren't alone in our struggles. There's a whole community, an entire people who were not just organizing to overcome systemic barriers or the many isms that we face in our lives, but we were really creating space for each other, which is sometimes hard to find. And I think with that intention, we kind of wanted to talk about an event that we helped organize last night. Um, we're all part of California Latinas for Reproductive Justice. Um, we work with the chapters, and uh, both the organization and the chapters invited uh, community members, people who create art, write poetry, organize, and we all um, came together to share our stories around the many ways we've experienced uh, an issue related to reproductive justice. So that was, you know, whether it's our right to parent, our right to choose not to parent, or the right to live with our families, whether chosen or biological in these environments where we live with dignity and resources that allow us to thrive. Right. Um, when we were planning this event, uh, it was our intention to be as intersectional as possible and reflective of what our community actually looks like. So we had indigenous women sharing their story, Afro-Latina women sharing their story. Queer women of color. And what I really liked about this event in particular was that it was actually intersectional in the sense that they went outside of the abortion versus pro-life or pro-choice, sorry, um, narrative because we heard stories about uh, women who had miscarriages, women who chose not to have children, queer women, women struggling with infertility, deciding whether or not to adopt and their choices, their doubts. And essentially what I heard throughout all these stories um, was a story about self-determination and resistance and different aspects of our lives because we are products of our social upbringings. Right. And we saw ourselves, even though we all came from different places and, you know, we all have our individual uh, story, but at the same time, we share so many of these experiences. And um, one of the beautiful thing about this event is that it was hosted by Isaika Femme. And it's an historical place already because it's a place that fought uh, gentrification on the past and actually won through community organizing. However, they're still fighting on gentrification. And this is an issue that is very important because people of color and women of color especially are the most um, marginalized and affected by this. So to be in a place that had been uh, fighting gentrification through community was also a very um, empowering experience. Speaking about being in places where we see women who represent us telling their own stories, stories that we share because of our experiences, 
Um, the night before Healing Our Hearts happened, we were actually at an event at UCLA called the Spark, the Social Impact Media Summit. Um, yeah, so I uh, am currently a student there, and I think the only reason I realized that there was a space is because I get these bulletins. So, mm-hmm. uh, so not surprisingly, when we enter the space, it's mostly uh, folks white and folks who are already in the filmmaking industry already creating um uh, what you would say quote unquote social impact content so you had people from vice you had people who screened at sundance all these really kind of trendy but you know people like to say that they're up and coming and semi-progressive but honestly as we looked around the room there was probably a handful or maybe a little bit more than a handful of people I can of color count on my hand how many women of color there were in that right space. and then and we actually it's funny we had an experience with a, a white woman who <laughs> told us to move from our seats they're like oh we've reserved their seats and this is a free event open to the public and even within that space we were facing microaggressions but that's kind of beside the point um we went there and and we were and we we're getting this really um useful information about how to fund for your creative projects what people are doing and um what we kept seeing is that the conversation was dominated by a white perspective because even when they're telling our stories um their point of reference is only their experiences that they've had which are very privileged and it's because they don't they haven't they've been accustomed to a life where they don't have need right so their point of reference is always to this ideal like experience of having you know the white picket fence um not dealing with struggles like ours so they see it as yeah they come from a very privileged standpoint so these are oftentimes people who had either gone to school for filmmaking or media content creation or production or uh, they had um, access to funding so they could learn it themselves. And we were sitting in, in the audience and really we were just reflecting on the fact that even as we started this journey, we're very much self-funded. We're very much trying to fit this in between our busy schedules as students and as workers. Right. Um, and these people, there's no way they could relate to that. And, and I'm not judging them. It's just... Uh, reacting to the kind of dialogue they were carrying. And I think I pointed out to Jennifer that we saw the guy who made the... That ne- one Netflix special, um, Living on a Dollar a Day, and it was filmed in Guatemala. Actually, Edna's from Guatemala, so... What do you think about that movie? Well, I I didn't have the chance to attend to the event. However, when you... Um, brought that reference I was thinking about how I felt the first time that I saw an episode of living on one dollar a day I saw my family there in the sense that they were not directly my family but I could see them on the way they they present them but it was very very um, paternalistic Um, it was presented with a lot of pity and it's underlines I could see it because I come from that community I grew up in a very, very poor uh, uh, house, and I was living under $1 a day with my family. We was a family of four. So when I saw that, I could relate that to myself. And I had the chance to watch this with a few um, people, some of them white, and they couldn't feed me on there because they see me here in this context. 
and they see me here attending to school. They see me here very outspoken and very confident about what I want in life. However, they cannot relate to my whole journey to be here, my experience being an undocumented woman. And it's interesting because I could see the dichotomy of somebody that can relate to those experiences through personal experiences and somebody that is just profiting from those through, well, it can be not only academic colonization, but also institutional colonization because what these people is giving to my community, nothing. Yeah, and from it. exactly. And so knowing that, and then seeing this guy start off his talk, I forget his name, but he started off his um, discussion about how this documentary uh, didn't just have feature, you know, this community, um, but it was able to raise like a million dollars. And then he his presentation goes on to talk about this one character in the film, uh, Carlos, and how he had seen him grow up and he was boasting about how, you know, how he has a friendship with Carlos, a real friendship because they're Facebook friends mm-hmm. and they would talk, right? Um, they would keep in contact. But when Carlos decided to um, immigrate to the U.S., um, not through the legal system, um, but to cross through the desert, he started to get a, the director started to get a glimpse into the reality of what it means to come to the United States um, in that way, which for us, uh, it's not anything new because we all know people who have immigrated from different places in different ways, right? Um, And so he goes on to talk about how, you know, the mother called him and, and was worried because she hadn't heard about her son for like three weeks since he had left. And he... He was the this white person finally got kind of a, a taste a taste of what it was to to not know where your family was because the decision that this one individual took came out of a context where he probably didn't have the resources to apply for a visa or he wouldn't have gotten it because our immigration system is so fucking racist yeah. and so Jennifer and I are looking at each other and we're like what happened to that one million dollars that he said that that film raised yeah what does this fool do like did you call up Carlos be like hey like yo puedo pagar por algo yeah por, por tu coyote Exacto, or something like and like we don't know the details but it, a lot of conversation came from attending that event and even though we learned a lot we saw how important it was to really have the point of view of the stories that we're telling. Like we're not we're not foreign. We're not we're very close in degrees of separation to the people that we're wanting to feature. Um, we know yes. that there's an entire spectrum of color and experiences that are located in our countries, right? Because we talk about that, we live it, and then these people are they're incapable of holding our complexities, right? Well, this is not a new rhetoric. This is something that had been um, happened through a lot of time. The idea of the white savior coming and trying to show the world your pain. And then suddenly, because the world see how you live, everything is going to be better. And we cannot expect representation from um, colonized uh, view. We need representation from spaces that we cannot live around communities. And it's important to break this rhetoric. Yeah, because we're the expert of our own communities, and we want to be featuring the experts. So El Elotero, um, la, la Vendedora, like our mothers. The hustlers. The hustlers. The rappers. The artists. And the we, mothers. 
Yeah, and we also really want to highlight the work that we're doing. We are strong and we are complex and dynamic and we lead lead these full lives and so that's really that's really what we're wanting to bring and and it was just uh, a coincidence or maybe kind of divine alignment that we kind of went through this series of events in which we saw the way we're being presented uh, on Friday through that summit to the way we could pre-present it and the difference and the impact that when we host our own spaces as women of color uh, and we invite the people that we see doing good work or even if it's small businesses, even if it's um, people who are organizing, whoever it is, we invite them, we bring them together and we really did heal our hearts at that night. So... So with that, we would like to introduce the part of the segment in which we feature female musicians. In honor of Black History Month, we want to highlight the creative work of Black women. The first song we're featuring is by the badass female MC, Sarah, with her single, I Am Her. Arrangement of your daddy's show. This double extraordinary in the medic flow is brought to you by Audrey and Bella, Maya Angelo. Hand them over, we need the titles, receipts, and the pyre replete with the power to speak. And no, this is not a request. Hundreds of years of full silence got a lot on my chest. And we don't need your approval on our style of address. You style of the dress, I rock a head wrap and bulletproof vest. And start my lyrical sermon with this mother, you guessed it. Just so we're clear who governs reproductive requests. It's not up to anyone's opinion or how I'm protected. I'm part of Collectors for Miley the Mecca getting bigger And I premier gonna be major, no longer hitting figures We out the level to plan for for them young queens Coming for that wage gap till we recoup them hidden figures And 97 million women marching, I was with it In 2017, the same nigga established been living If this a man's world, we came in and grabbed the equipment And watched the future reimagined by the hand of the fifth <laughs> Excited to introduce our first guest, Saira Kelly Cabrera, aka Bad Dominicana, who is an Afro Dominicana mommy, writer, artist, mujerista, award winning socio cultural critic, and international speaker. She's known for advocating Latinegra visibility and rights on social media, is an unfiltered social critique, and breaks down her truth into accessible language. She was born in New York City and raised between Puerto Plata, the Dominican Republic, and the Bronx by her mother, who is also a creative Renaissance woman. She's also the creator of the internationally trending hashtags, Maybe He Doesn't Hit You, and his Spanish-language version, Quizar No Te Pegue, on how gendered, non-physical abuse manifests in daily life. Thank you so much for joining us for our first podcast, Aida. 
Thank you for having me. So uh, we are actually watching your video, which was recently published on uh, YouTube about your um, TED Talk in Mexico City. Um, we want to know how it felt being in a in a country like Mexico, who has high rates of uh, femicidios, a large culture of silence when it comes to like uh, domestic abuse, and giving this talk about tal vez no te pegue. I really would say that the Dominican Republic is very similar in those respects. Mm -hmm. Um, we have one of the highest femicide rates as well, and we're like a tiny island. Um, I grew up just watching women, like, on the weekend news, just every weekend, it's normal to see women who are struggle, shot, you know, like, machete to pieces. Like, that's, like, the norm, you know? That's just what happens to us. And when people ask, they're just like, you know, well, maybe she cheated or, like, you know, she talked back to him or something. And, you know, like, that's supposed to justify it or something. Right. So, really, for me, it was a very, very heavy topic, not just because of that, but also my own personal lived experiences. Um, I struggled with, like, how to approach it in a way that was personal and still detached enough that, you know, it didn't expose me. And other people too much at the same time, you know? Like, that was pretty difficult for me to navigate, honestly, emotionally. It took um, a few weeks for me to, like, really figure out how to do it. Mm. And when I was there, it, I was, like, kind of shaky about it. And also, there was just a lot of dynamics to it, you know, not just that, the history of Mexico, my own history. But I was also literally the only black woman anywhere wow. I walked around at all wow. that entire room was filled with people and like I was literally the only black girl there period point blank yeah and you know Mexico has a, a large Afro Mexican presence in the costas but you kind of uh, begin it begins to get erased once you travel even right more inwards, but like right? let me like this is what was really interesting to me is there's like a huge difference between how i'm approached by like say mexicans on the west coast versus how i was approached by mexicans in mexico mm -hmm. like on the west coast it's like there's no way that you could ever be hispanic or latina or whatever you want to call it like we're not going to speak to you in spanish even if it's obvious that you're speaking native speaker spanish i'm going to pretend like i don't hear you Mm. I'm not going to acknowledge you because you're black. Whereas I was in Mexico twice because I was also at Tecnológico de Monterrey um, presenting on Maybe He Doesn't Hit You As Well with Cynthia Garcia Galindo. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I got there, the first thing that they asked me at the airport is, am I a Mexican national? And it was just kind of like, wow. so basically you know that there's black people here and you're asking Am I from here? You know, when I was leaving, it was the same thing. Are you a Mexican national? Like, that was an actual question as to whether or not I was. So somebody with the hair that I had in the video and looking like me is, like, they know that there's a possibility that I'm Mexican. I would like to uh, ask you, because the experience being an Afro-Latina in Latin America and the experience being an Afro-Latina in the United States, it's completely different because um, in the United States, there's a whole identity that erase the Latino experience being a black negra. 
and you have the experience, the transnational experience. So I wonder if you can talk about about that identity because in both sides, the mujer negra is the most oppressed, but there's a whole different narrative being in Latin America and being here in the U.S. Really, there's a difference in the way that my body in general is consensualized in the U.S. versus Latin America. Like, in Latin America, I'm like a negra fea or whatever. Mm-hmm. At the most, some kind of mulata, and, but it still puts me in like some lower category where I'm like not worthy of any kind of representation whatsoever and like you're not going to see me basically nowhere even though I'm a light-skinned black girl it's still too black you know mm-hmm. whereas in the United States like okay my Latinidad like people cannot really deal with that that much however here there is representation there's over representation of light-skinned black women mm-hmm. actually So it'll be stuff like I would look at the music videos and like I would see hella girls that look like me. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, maybe they, some of them are Latina, actually Afro-Latinas, but some of them aren't. But like the point is like there's like this fetishization and like hypersexualization of bodies like mine here. And it's like, if anything, darker women are kind of pushed out so that they can like focus more on light-skinned black girls who look like they might be mixed or something, you know? So, like, here there is, like, that context. So here I am the supposedly cute Mm -hmm. or something. Right. Suddenly I experienced not being completely ugly, hideous, um, rough, whatever. And it was just because, like, there's actually a space socially. Mm Mm-hmm for me in that way and it's like a thing that draws back to like saying NOLA plusage era you know like the quadrant balls you know there was like this whole social bracket for mixed black girls mm-hmm. you know in relation to rich white men you know they would be the mistresses or whatever and, and like there's a historical thing for that space that I occupy here right basically whereas in Latin America it's like I do have privilege over darker skinned black girls and at the same time like I'm like blackness over there is more invisibilized rather than over here where it's overrepresented basically like here if you ask the average American they'll tell you that they think that half of the population is black in reality it's like 13% yes you know in Latin America it's the exact opposite it'll be like Colombia where it's like 10% of people identify as black and if you ask around they'll be like we don't have that here You know? Yeah, a complete erasure. I think it's interesting that you're talking about kind of this um, this dichotomy where you're seen very dark in Latin America and and more light skinned over here, and that comes with a certain type of visibility and experience in the states. And recently, like that uh, video with Amara La Negra kind of blew up, where she's talking about her producer. And she's expressing, you know, how she's a very dark-skinned woman. And in Latin music genre in general, there's no representation in that. Um, and the fact that her Afro-Latinidad is also questioned. It's either you're black or la- you're Latina. Like, those two things don't mix, right? So mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of get your take in terms of, like, what is it having to... Do you feel like you always have to defend your Afro-Latinidad in the States? Um, and what has that experience been like for you um, growing up or even reclaiming it as an... 
I've been on the internet for like a decade now and like there's a shit ton of people who come at me um, just with stuff about either, you know, I'm not real black or I am somehow pretending to be important in Latin America because like I'm not really the norm so like I shouldn't matter mm. in Latin America. You know, that's usually the whatever. Like, you pelo malo people are a rarity. I don't know why you keep trying to censor yourselves. Like, I literally had some little white Latinos say that kind of shit or whatever. Yes. Um, so, or, you know, in my country, we didn't. We don't have negatives. Um, in my country, we didn't have slavery. And it's like, what? that's a lie. Every single Latin American country has slaves. Every single one of them. There is no exception to that, really. Yeah, we've imported um, more, actually, than, like, the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like people are really that deluded. Um, I'm really tired at this point of defending it in any kind of way. I'm tired of every article being always like having to teach people the history of Latin America, you know, from inception just to be able to say anything about you being Afro-Latina, period, you know. Three quarters of the article is, is like the history lesson of just like from 1492 to here, this is what has happened. You know, mm-hmm. like you have to catch everybody up on like everything before you can even talk. Yeah, you know, course. and I'm tired. Um, I can't undo the fact that I arrived here on slave ships or whatever. Like, it, it's not for anybody to like or not like. It just is, you know. Um, and as far as Latinidad, you know, what is Latinidad without blackness? Like, as far as music, religion, um customs everything is very black what people call like authentically latin american you know mm-hmm. but black people you gotta hate on or whatever every popular music genre is black in latin america mm-hmm. even when yeah. they think that they're like fancy and doing white people rock and pop it's rock and pop that's based on black things yeah so it's just like everything that you like and love is black you know, but we are erased from everything that we make. Bongo is black, but yes. it's seen as like a white people dance or something. You know, like everything is black. Yeah. Is black. So, um, speaking of the erasure of black women from mainstream media, the you know the hashtag Me Too movement? So it was started mm-hmm. by a black woman, Tanya Burke, and has since been erased or popularized because of the co-optation by these um, famous white elites, the superstars in Hollywood. Um, uh-huh. Does that relate to your hashtag, tal vez no te pegue, like maybe he doesn't hit you? Or how did that, how did your hashtag kind of expand that conversation around sexual harassment, especially in a culture that wants to kind of like put the, the victimization and the harassment and violence of white women above women of color? When I did um, Quizá No Te Pegue or like maybe it doesn't hit you to be honest um, I was just um, relating stuff that had happened to me and other people mm-hmm. um, I didn't even intend for it to be a hashtag um, I really am just speaking from my life usually and um, I'm not doing theoretical stuff um, that it happened to coincide with like Me Too's message and all that is because like there's just a lot of shit that we have to adore like on so many levels 
it's like that's another prong of the same kind of stuff that I'm talking about. Like, there's so many. There's so much work to do. There's so much work to be done. And um, as far as white women um, being seen as the perpetual um, damsels in the stress that everybody has to save, I mean, that's really... Um, that's leading back to, like, colonial shit and, like, you know, brown and black girls go missing, like, ten times more than white girls. So, like, who are we always, like, searching for? Like, what is the tragic story out there? You know, it's like a missing white girl. Um, yeah. In general, like, this is, like, macolonial. Like, think back to, like, slavery days. It was, like, um, who was worthy of being saved? It was, like, the, mm-hmm. the wives of the slave masters who also you know, we're slave owners, and it's just, um, when they were fighting for their right to work, black women were in the fields with no choice as to whether or not they wanted to work, yes. you know? Um, so, like, the frailty of white women, like, obviously, um, it's weaponized, mm-hmm. um, and it extends, like, as far as colorist stuff, like, I'm just going to be honest here, but, like, in Latin America, that extends to, like, light-skinned mestizas, Mm-hmm. You know, white Latinas in general, like you know, they're the damsels in relation to the black girls, and like the same kind of thing happens. Um, movements are centered around, you know, non-black Latinas or whatever all over Latin America, and we're basically in a side there too um, in women's issues. You know, they'll do stuff like um, point out that, you know, media is very sexist, you know, with the images that they show of them, but they will not mention that the media doesn't even have any black girls, period, for example. Um, And in general, like, who is the stuff really happening to in Latin America? Um, I would say that it all ties into, like, this big clusterfuck of anti-blackness everywhere. It's like a net, so... And it's all, like, levels... So, I mean, we're going to see the same dynamics playing out in movements in Latin America. And that includes, like, socialist movements or whatever. When you ask them about Afro-Indigenous women, they have nothing to tell you because they never thought about us. Mm-hmm. And then if you mention it, they're like, oh, you're an anti-communist. You are a capitalist. You're whatever. And it's like, no, it means that, like, you guys who claim to be anti-capitalist still forgot who was the one that was literally bought and sold here. Yeah. You know? And it's like Latin America has an issue with that as well, you know, basically. Like um, the left is also, you know, anti-black misogynist. It is. Um, I would like to bring the conversation because I've been um, checking some of the videos that you have posted on your Instagram. you actually telling that your name of Bad Dominicana comes from Dominican men telling you that you're, you're a bad Dominicana, you're a bad representation of Dominicana. Mm-hmm. I will like yeah American society and the leftist movement also like to frame the black struggle as a whole and often invisibilize the dynamic of power between men and women and the ways that patriarchy affects women on the struggle can you elaborate on this um yeah so you know, patriarchy means um, not just men are trash, but like women were raised to kind of buy into it mm-hmm. as well. Yes. So, you know, I have the men policing my everything, um, talk about I'm not a good example of whatever. And then I have the women 
who feel really repressed and constrained and are mad because they're like, you're promoting nudity and you're making us look bad because I'm trying so hard to fight against this hypersexualization. Mm-hmm. You know that like white colonialism and patriarchy like flung on me and you talking about sexuality and like pushing nude art or whatever. You're like feeding into that and you're making my life, you know, more complicated. You know, you're a bad example. So, you know, um, all of that occurs and I think that in general when it comes to men of color specifically I I really want to say here you hear a lot about like oh but white people oppress us all Mm -hmm. you know that's what they want to go by and then I'm just like pero who do you think runs Latin America it's men It's, it's it's men there's men of color right um most of the world is black and brown countries who do you think runs those black and brown countries it's black and brown men exactly um they control the wealth um they control the domestic arena um the industry they control everything so it's kind of like um they like to decontextualize themselves so wipe themselves clean to so that we cannot well. have these conversations but really, it's like we have to really think about who runs black and brown countries. It's them. Like, we're not all equally victims of white people. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, men of color, they also try to act like, you know, you're embarrassing them as a nationality or race, making them look bad. So, um, um, as you mentioned, your art includes, and we were looking at your art, and we were very much like, wow, this is beautiful. And it's not necessarily um, something that you see, you know, everything portrayed from black nudity to a black virgen, right? And then um, you also speak about healing and, and your art. What has been your journey um, through your art and healing in terms of all of these different oppressions um, that we've been speaking about? Well, I think with my art, I've gone through some processes, you know, from not really thinking about why I'm doing what I'm doing to being super conscious about why I'm doing what I'm doing, mm-hmm. you know, and literally trying to pr- make representation of what I don't see represented. And then just from moving on from that to like telling myself, like, I actually deserve joy and I deserve to just make whatever makes me happy, whatever I think is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I'm still struggling with that because there's so much pressure to be a utilitarian object mm-hmm. in the struggle. Everything has to be the work, you know? Yeah. You don't get to do stuff just out of joy. So, you know, you go to a modern art museum and you see, like, these weirdly shaped vases mm-hmm. that some white people made <laughs> and that's art because they can just focus on art and just be like, this is what looks cute to me. Right. It doesn't have to have some deep, like, anti-whatever, you know, slant to it, you know? Yeah. And I just wish that I could come to a point where I could just do things out of the love of beauty without having to think about what am I countering. That's where I'm at right now. And it means that, like, I'm not outputting as much as I want to because I'm still struggling to figure out what that looks like, you know? Yeah. And even as, um, well, because when we first met you at in Santa Barbara, uh, we were kind of talking about um, our kids. I have a five-year-old and you have your little girl, right? Um, so even through the daily struggle of having to work to provide for your daughter, 
um, you know, all these different things. It's like even then you have to like carve out that space to be creative. And Mm -hmm. even when you carve out that space, you're still going through like an emotional process. And I'm also speaking for myself where there's doubt. um, There's sometimes even fear. um, There's like these expectations you put on yourself to be perfect. Um, So I don't know. Do you what do you tell yourself um, in that process to kind of get out of your own way and and create? Because what you create really is beautiful. Um, But as you mentioned, you do have a process with yourself. So what are the things that you do or maybe um, practices or anything that kind of gets you into the into a place of acceptance and flow when you're creating? I mean, I guess it sucks to say right, but I've been really, really productive in the times when I have been going through the most horrible things mm-hmm. in some way, mostly because, and that's only because I had sort of like, say, the resources to like buy clay or something. Yeah. And um, I had, like, the resources to get equipment, which Patreon has helped so much for that. But basically, like, you know, when I was at my worst emotionally, I would, the way that I would lose myself was focusing on, like, these little miniatures that I would. Um, I would like to change a little bit the topic and maybe uh, bring to um, motherhood. Because I know motherhood for women of color had been challenged in a very in a very negative stereotyping, especially here in the U.S. And being an Afro Latina, um, it's just enhanced at the way that people perceive motherhood. Um, and I know you're doing your art in order to survive as well. Um, I would like to ask you, uh, as a mother, how you are planning to. Uh, share all these issues but at the same time knowledge to your daughter I think that I kind of wanted to wait Mm -hmm. and then I realized that she was ready Mm -hmm. and I was talking to her about things but she really drew her own conclusions already so Mm -hmm. if you talk to her you know she's 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 a very woke nine years old (laughs) she's a very innocent nine years old you know, she's like anti-government and like, which that's, <laughs> that's, that's, good, that's, that's not good. coming from me. That's her asking me questions about the government and being like, mom, that's not right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yes>. You know? <laughs> yeah, kids are perceptive way more than we think. Right. And she's like anti-colonialism. Like she's, you know, she gets it. And I also don't want to like, unload on her and burden her too much mm-hmm. you know so you know when she asks the questions I give her the answers because they ask yes. you know they want to know they do I guess I'm just taking it day by day because you know it's like everybody's different and everybody's ready at a different time mm-hmm. so I'm just you know how it is mothering like you just go kind of fly by the seat of your pants you gotta yeah. take it day by day because you don't know what the fuck is happening yep. the next second yeah as many as many books as there are out there it's like none of that none of that prepares you like you said for their questions for their golpes uh, physical emotional and all that stuff so uh it's definitely like learn as you go and hopefully you do you do the best you can but i honestly i feel like they turn out so good because just of the women that we are and the strength that we bring and that's you know showing by example 
and I mean not just that but she's inspired so much of that too you know like for example when I had her I was like so focused on her like I was dressing in all black and sneakers and just like I wasn't really paying attention to my appearance and like as soon as she could speak any kind of anything she was like you need to pick her a yellow dress <laughs> she literally took heels out of my closet and was like put them on like I realized like she wants to see a lively mother right mm-hmm. as opposed to the you know the stuff that says that mothers need to be in chunk mm. like yeah. I don't know um frumpy and whatever she's like no like it's like for her to be happy she needs to have like a happy you know lively mother as well you know like she taught me that honestly and so yeah it's not just like me empowering her like she empowers me like you know when when I just like her self-esteem I'm just like I wish I had that self-esteem you know she's beautiful she's like yeah (laughs) that's a response you know and whereas I can't even take a fucking compliment (laughs) you know that's funny I'm like no 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 I'm not you know and it's just like she teaches me basically Mm -hmm. and I guess that's also because I've been very conscious of like preserving her self-esteem yeah yeah yeah, because all those doubts uh, are things that we pick up along the way. Exactly. We, pick, we pick it up later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. That's great. Um, wow. So this has been a great conversation. Uh, we want to thank you again um, for just taking the time and speaking to us. And I'm sure we can talk for like three more hours, but um <laughs> we hope to have you back again soon and um if you want to shout out your handles or your website so people can check out your art and the things that you do oh yeah um you can check out my art prints and other merchandise like i have like platano prints and empanada prints and all kind of stuff i like shops are here mm-hmm. keep up with what i'm doing at sahira.co and like i'm always on ig and twitter at bad on this dominicana which is where most people know me from at this point all right yeah thank you very much and we're really looking forward to see um what's next and we encourage uh people to support um women like you because you provide us with a lot of knowledge Mm -hmm. and with a lot of context that most of people are not aware. So we feel that the thing that you're doing is extremely important. So thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. One, two. One, two. Uh, yo. Body hurting, seen the world still turning. A witch that wouldn't burn to be brown and to be woman. To be permanently stuck in the skin of a sinner Like bitter cinnamon and broken mahogany splinters My role is holy and my mother is too Is it because I'm magic that my veins are not blue? Sisters and hoes know the woes is the same If you, you found me slain, would you still say my name? See, I know about the black man and what he been through What if I sung about the woman that he brought it home to? I've been crying for my brothers, but I cry for me too Cause I'm the only one left to be more powerless than you Even though it was she who taught the sun to get mulatto I'm plenty blended, but don't call me exotical Like I was half black and half beautiful It's so methodical, I find it diabolical 
All encrypted in the code is biological You strip the pride that is rising in my follicles But these curves are not a caricature For your capitalizing Now decolonize me As the west in the metropolis, yes Down to money, Mississippi All the way to the west I feel my back is breaking And the yank in my chest The fruit is getting stranger And the streets never rest But this is for you Sarah Bartman, you are art to these marksmen Show you in the town square Put you up to fight And with your wildest cries I identify See, I've been on display like items for their eyes And I try to board a midnight train I said I have no money, but I have a lot of pain All I wanted was to leave my father's house, make it out But every time I sing, they remind me of the stain And I wonder, who's gonna know, who's gonna hold her The last are left out, lost and looked over The songs of Sam only rain on some In this man's world, the change gon' come Come finished listening to Sarah Bartman by Nitty Scott. We're so excited to be sharing this project with you and invite you to follow us on Instagram at Con Las Comadres. Also, feel free to tell us what you like, what we can improve, and if you have any ideas for upcoming themes, topics, or if you want to collaborate with us, uh, DM us or email us at conlascomadres at gmail.com. That concludes our first episode. Stay tuned for our next segment in which we will talk with the revolutionary mamas of Afirma who are organizing the third annual International Women's Day rally on March the 3rd, titled Uprising, for war to a feminist future. In solidarity con las comadres. <laughs>